Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. There are only a couple of types of pleasure that one person can experience in their lives that could be considered extreme. Being on a conference call on a Saturday morning is definitely not one of them. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. What if the people that our society has deemed dangerous enough to put behind bars, what if the way that they use power ended up being strikingly similar to the way that many leaders in business and in other parts of society use power as well? If that's the case, that should give us pause and should cause us to reflect on why that is and what that means for what we should expect from our leaders and what we can do to make sure that we lead differently than that. In our interview today, we're going to get into some of those really deep issues really fast, and it's going to be something that I think will really stretch your thinking on power and how it can be used and misused in our society. Our guest today believes deeply in the possibility of a world where people with power use it to raise others up, but he also knows the dark side of power. He has interviewed more than 250 perpetrators of power-based crimes, and he's worked with their victims to put the pieces of their broken lives back together. Drawing on more than a decade in senior leadership in the nonprofit and corporate worlds, he teaches organizations who they should give power to, and he helps them train their leaders to use power well. Here is Andy Wallace. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I like to start off every interview with a few questions to help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. So you ready for these? I'm ready. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? I'm going to go with an experience here, Josh. Um, When I was about 22, 23 years old, I was a lead pastor of a small congregation in rural America. And I got a call from a woman in our congregation. Her and her husband were well-known, well-respected in the community and the congregation. And I was really just a kid trying to help lead folks and trying to, to make a difference in the community. And she called me and she was crying. I couldn't understand what she was saying. She said, Pastor, you've got to come over. I need help. Uh, she hung up. I called my wife. I said, Kristen, we, we've got to go talk to this person. So we got in the car and we drove out to her house. She was sitting there when I walked in the door on the couch. She was covered in bruises and she was just weeping. She showed me pictures of various times where her husband had been abusing her. And I had no, I was floored. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say to her. I didn't know how to help her. In retrospect, the only comfort I have in that is that I didn't give her any bad advice. I didn't know what to do. And I think in some ways that saved me. I didn't even think I knew what to do. I knew that I didn't know. And that 
over the next couple of years, as I continue to try to help people, I, I preached the funerals of children. I talked multiple people down from suicide. I counseled people through being betrayed by their spouse. I, I found out that a religious organization that I had grown up believing in was rotten with abusive power. I tried to help a family rescue their son from drug addiction. And then I nearly lost a two-year battle of my own with depression and chronic anxiety. And when you go, when you begin to go through that, when you begin to get involved in people's lives and you realize the world is more broken than you thought, people everywhere are struggling. There are challenges and those, those, those pat answers that you give out don't really help. What that does, those types of experiences, if you let them, they humble you and they change the way you lead. And that has, has changed the trajectory of my leadership and how I approach people. Wow. What a way to start off the interview. I'm sure we're going to get back to some of those things later on in the interview, but I want to go ahead and go to our second question, which is this. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is self-aware, intentional, and evolving. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? I think in any given context, the question that we should ask ourselves is, what is my mission, purpose, and identity in relation to the decisions or or the situation that you're dealing with? What's my mission, purpose, and identity here? What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? Dare to Lead by Brene Brown uh, for a couple of reasons, because I think it's high time we heard a woman's voice on leadership. I realize there are other women leaders who have spoken about it. Brene Brown right now, though, whether you agree with everything she says or not, she is making a huge impact on the mindset of the workforce. She has completely broken out of the academic and the business world right into the mainstream. I mean, she's on Netflix for crying out loud. So I, I think it's, we should really be paying attention to the things she's saying. They're clearly resonating with a lot of people. And uh, she's, she's saying some really powerful things. I, I would say anything by Simon Sinek. And both of them are less about the mechanics of management and leadership and more about the mindset, which I think is, is more foundational. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Now, these are, these are, I want you to know when you told me you're going to be asking these questions, it was not super easy. You, you went, you went deep fast. Um, and a lot of potential <laughs> answers here. If I could get a leader to start doing something, I would say exploring themselves more deeply. And by that, I mean doing things like, um, like the Enneagram, maybe uh, exploring their family history, finding a mentor, doing things that help them understand themselves better. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? It totally depends on the context. Uh, if you force me to choose, though, I'll say why. And if you ask me why I chose why, I'll say why not? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I don't. I, I need to think about that for a second, but I like the answer. So, Andy, we are here today to talk about your work with the ideas of, of power and the role that power plays in leadership, how it can be used well and how it can be used poorly. And in your bio, we talked a little bit about how you have done a lot of work with both the perpetrators and victims of power-based crimes. And I think it would be really interesting to start off the interview hearing about how you got into that work and some of the things that you learned from that process. Yeah. So as I mentioned um, in the beginning, I was pastoring and I ran into, in in a small congregation, and I ran into this problem. It was something I never thought I would see 
within the congregation. I knew, of course, that domestic violence, that family violence happened, but I always assumed it was happening on the fringes. And it wasn't until I began to see it crop up in the community that I was leading that I realized that this was a bigger problem. And so I went on a search to try to figure out how do I, how do I find answers for people? Because even at that point in my life, I knew that if I had any responsibilities as a leader, uh, certainly at the core, it was to find real solutions to the problems that people were facing. And so I knew tried answers weren't going to help. And I, so I went on, I went on explanation and I, and I came across a couple of fantastic local nonprofits. I was really fortunate to live in a city where there were some really high quality nonprofits that were doing work around the subject, uh, the social services and domestic violence intervention. So I got involved uh, with them first of all as a pastor and found out that, you know, one in four women were experiencing domestic violence in their lifetimes. And eventually uh, took a job in social work, working with victims and perpetrators. And through that experience, began to understand, I don't know how much you, you may know about this, but, but domestic violence at its core is, is about power and control. It's where one partner in a relationship, generally the male, but sometimes there are female perpetrators, but in the vast majority of cases, it's the male. But this one partner in a relationship is trying to control the other partner. And um, there are a number of behaviors. And anybody that's listening that wants, I know this is not a, a podcast about DV education, but if you'd like to, to learn more about that, you can just Google the domestic violence wheel. And you're going to see a list of the types of behaviors in kind of a, in a pie format. Uh, a list of the types of behaviors that they'll use to gain leverage that an abuser or a batterer will, will use to gain leverage over and control their spouse. And what's interesting about that is as I worked in that world, as I tried to help people and interviewed many, many perpetrators and spent time facilitating support groups and spent time with these families, I realized a couple of things. First of all, that most uh, everybody I worked with, their ideas about power and intimate relationships when I say intimate, intimate meaning not just marriages or what we might generally think of as intimate, but really any kind of relationship where I have an ongoing close interaction with somebody can be considered a type of intimacy. Uh, but their ideas about intimate relationships were based on their history, based on their experience of power in their childhood and adolescence and, and young adulthood. And then secondly, I realized that a lot of the same strategies that they were using in these violent crimes, a lot of the same mindsets and even some of the actual behaviors were being used in religious life, in faith communities, and in corporate life. Um, I became involved in corporate management after that and, and realized that a lot of these same ideas were playing out between managers and teammates, between upper management and lower management, a lot of these same power dynamics, not always, obviously not rising to the level of criminal or violent behavior, but you'd be surprised how far it does go, or maybe you wouldn't, um, but a lot of the same mindsets and ideas about what power is, about how to use it, about how it's best used to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And what are some of those mindsets that people in positional power tend to have that they can take in the wrong directions? So I'll give you the, the, the nutshell. What it all boils down to is power is used to control people, right? And many managers in corporate situations and business situations they believe that their job is to control the people who report to them. And that's not your job. Um, that's not the best use of power. It's not a good use of power. 
It's the lowest form of power. And, and you just, everybody, you stop trying to control your people. It's stressful for the, for everybody. And it's ultimately damaging to everybody. And, and there are several ways that that begins to, to show itself. I have built a model that I share with companies and leaders that gives the positive aspects of this, that highlights the five components of an empowering culture. And they, they are mirrored in each case by the misuse. And I have what's called an empowerment target. I'll be glad to, to put a link in the show notes to that or something like that, if, if that would be helpful. But it's, there are five components, and I'll just give them to you really quick because I think they'll be helpful um, as we talk about this. The first one is physical and psychological safety. If you have positional power, a lot of times people with positional power will put people either in danger or make them feel unsafe through intimidation or coercion. They may get up in someone's physical space. Maybe you've had a manager in the past that's done that. If you're listening or raise their voice, stomp around, slam the door, uh, harassment obviously would fall into this category. Gotcha moments where, where a manager might be ambushing their teammates to see if they're not working or if they know all the answers to this you know project they're working on. And if you've experienced any of that, public humiliation would go in this category. Those are all types of workplace danger. They don't help. They're an attempt by the manager to try to control their people. But what actually happens is it increases anxiety and it makes the mission of the organization very difficult even to pay attention to, much less pursue. So the first one is physical and psychological safety. The second one is, is trust, implicit trust. When a leader makes sacrifices for their team, when they're honest, when they respect the team, when, we, when they advocate for their needs, when they listen to them, when they take time to understand them, when they consistently look out for them, it creates trust. And followers are able to focus on the mission knowing that their leader has their back. And when you insist that not only do you, do you lead that way, where you encourage trust and where you earn trust, which takes time, and you insist that every team member follows that example, treats their fellow team members that way, what you're doing is you're creating a culture uh, that boosts morale, it enables focus, it increases efficiency. Uh, the third one is mutual accountability. And the key there is the one that gets all the press is accountability. Everybody likes to talk about accountability. And if you're in a sales organization or if you're in any kind of business organization, you've heard the word accountability a million times. But to me, the key is the mutual portion of that. Mutual meaning that accountability is not a one-way street. Most of the time, accountability in a functioning organization goes from the top down. So the person at the top of the hierarchy keeps the person below them accountable. Then that person keeps the person below them accountable, and it goes right on down the line. And that you can function that way. But if you want to be a place that uses power well, that's not the best use of power. The best use of power is to say, yes, I'm going to hold you accountable. Yes, there are expectations in this role or in this position. But also, I'm going to give you because I have power to do this. And I have to be the one. If I have the power, I have to be the one that does this. I am going to give you the power to hold me accountable to our mission, to our identity, to our values. And every teammate, every person in this organization or in this this hierarchy has the right and even the responsibility to advocate respectfully on behalf of the mission. The leader has to instigate that, though, because they have the power to do so. The fourth one is agency. I'm a big believer in giving people as much autonomy as possible without jeopardizing the well-being of the mission and the team. 
Uh, there's really something powerfully motivating about waking up to go to a job where you feel a sense of self-determination. And agency is really powerful. If you have power, you use that power to give agency. On The contrast to this, of course, is whether you're talking about a DV situation or a business situation is you've got someone with power who's hoarding. Um, it, it's all about their advancement or their ability to see things go the way they want them to instead of saying, hey, how do you see this going for you? How do you see your career developing? What do you want to accomplish here? How does your role uh, need to look in order to to forward the mission, giving the other person as much agency, as much autonomy as possible? And then the fifth one, which which seems a little more obvious, is incentive. And that could be in the form of you know competitive compensation, self and career development, greater responsibilities, recognition. There's a lot of different types of incentive. But the important thing about incentive is that it needs to be positive incentive. A lot of times a manager who's trying to control people, when they think about incentivizing their people, the first thing they think about is corrective action or punishment of some kind, that that's the best way to get results. That if somebody's not doing their job or not doing the job the way the job is supposed to be done or the way I think it should be done, then we're going to introduce corrective action. Corrective action has its place. However, it's completely out of place if you didn't have a whole lot of a positive, if you didn't front load with positive incentive. It's kind of a last resort. And so the, it's really important to think about how you incentivize your team. And there's a lot of – most importantly, you've got to incentivize engagement in the mission, and you've got to align your incentive with the behaviors and activities that are required of the follower. You've got a lot of companies out there, they have misaligned incentives, they have unattainable incentives, they have insufficient incentives. Maybe they have no incentive at all, and that's just a great way to completely squander potential. So real quick, once again, these five components of an empowering culture are, first of all, physical and psychological safety, two, implicit trust, three, mutual accountability, four, agency, and five, incentive. And Andy, you kind of talked about some of the negatives of each of these. What would you say as you've worked with organizations, as you've interacted with many individuals who use power both poorly and well, which of these would you say that leaders tend to fall into the most when it comes to using them in ways that really uh, aren't ultimately for the good of the employee or the person who doesn't have that positional power? If you're trying to picture what we're talking about here, picture it as a target, right? So imagine a circular target. At the center of the target, uh, the bullseye is mission, purpose, and identity. Mission being, uh, this is what we're trying to accomplish. Purpose being, this is why we're trying to accomplish it. And identity, this is who we want to be in the process. These are our values that we go about that mission and that purpose with. So the bullseye is there. That's what we're aiming for. We want to as an organization, we want to focus on the mission, the purpose, the identity of, of the organization, why we came together, why we got hired, why we're all here. Let's focus there. And if I'm hitting the target with the decisions I'm making every day as a leader, that's what I want to be thinking about. How well are we accomplishing these things? And then if you imagine around that bullseye, you have these five components that we've just talked about. These are right there in that center section, where as we make decisions, it's like we're throwing darts at this empowerment target. We're trying to hit as close to that center as possible. And each of our decisions is going to fall into one of those categories, decisions that we make about um, our everyday operations, our everyday culture, our everyday decisions about how we treat each other, how we treat employees, how we treat followers. 
every decision is going to fit into one of those five categories. And so we want to get as close. Now, if you imagine then as you get away from the center of the target, each one of these categories has lesser um, expressions of these values. And so, for instance, physical and psychological safety. If we're coming into work and I have a leadership style where I'm you know, yelling at people because they're, uh, you know, they're not doing their jobs or I'm berating them or publicly humiliating people because they've shown up late or whatever. I'm creating a, a, a situation where there's danger. So on the outer edge, if I throw my dart about how am I going to treat this employee today and I throw my decision making dart and I hit there where I decide, oh, I'm going to publicly humiliate them or I'm going to berate them or whatever, I've hit the danger zone, right? I'm out there on the edge of the target. It's a terrible shot. I've almost missed the target. I'm in the danger zone. I've made them feel unsafe at work. Now, there's a, there is also a section that's in between physical and psychological safety and danger, and that's policy, right? So most companies, especially larger companies and corporations, they are in the policy section. They have policies in place that technically protect people. Right. There's an HR number that you can call. There are laws in place that they have posters up in the break room that say, you know, if you're being treated X, Y, Z, or if you're being harassed, you have this. Those policies provide a certain amount of protection. And in my experience, that's where most organizations exist. There's a middle ring that goes around these five components on the target. And that middle ring is where the majority of businesses and leaders function. If you function out on the very edge where you've got danger, Instead of safety, where you've got fear, like outright fear instead of trust, where you've got no accountability instead of mutual accountability, where you've got uh, helplessness instead of agency, where you've got out on the edge, you've got no incentive or, you know, negative incentive instead of positive incentive. If you're functioning on the edge, you just don't last very long. You end up with major problems. Where most people function is in the middle. And, and to give you an example of this, you've got a Wells Fargo type of a situation. They were functioning in that middle section. They had policies in place. They had, uh, you know, some top-down accountability. They had not trust, but they had some pragmatic dependence is what I would call it, where they kind of had to have each other. So they kind of had to have a certain amount of functioning there. They had some incentive, misaligned incentive or incentive that wasn't aligned with their, their mission, purpose, and identity. And so you end up with eventually that comes to light. And that's where most managers function. So I don't think there's one particular, to get back to your question, I don't know that there's one particular that's more common than the others in terms of each one of these components. I think most of us make decisions every day in small ways that land somewhere on the target. And more often than not, in the middle area where we're, where we're keeping it together but we're not really truly hitting that empowering center. So that was a massive answer, and you answered some questions that I was actually lining up to ask, and I, I appreciate that. The, the whole mission, purpose, identity question, and the mission is what we're doing. Purpose is why we're doing it, and identity is who we are in the process. Now, one of the questions that I have is that if most people are landing in that middle ring of policy as opposed to the outer ring of danger or the inner ring of safety, what should leaders be thinking about when it comes to the importance of policies and procedures and systems and things like that? In this middle ring, is that when leaders are using those to make their lives easier and protect themselves rather than using it to help out their employees or the people who are working under them? 
I don't, I don't know that that's quite the case. It's a really good question. And let me make a statement that I think will help us unravel that. In an unhealthy or antagonistic context, the leader is trying to gain or increase their power over others, and the intention is to control them. Okay, so when they're operating in that middle ring, where it's you know policy is keeping everything going, uh, there is some pragmatic dependence that they have. There's some top-down accountability happening. There's some minimal autonomy happening, and there's some incentive, even it might be slightly misaligned or it may not be you know healthy. But the leader in that situation often is is frustrated. Leaders are as frustrated often or more stressed than the people under them because they're not able to fully flex their power because policy gets in the way. Now, what they don't maybe don't realize is that that policy is is really saving them from a, a lot worse fate. Um, or they may feel like, you know, this pragmatic dependence, boy, if I could just get everybody to do exactly what I wanted to, then I wouldn't have to trust anybody. They may be in this place where this top-down accountability seems to be getting in the way. If, if, if my boss would just stay out of my hair, I could do my job. I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, accounting for my time or anything else. Or, you know, they, so they're, they're operating in this middle area. But a lot of times the mindset, they feel like it's keeping them from having the control they need because the focus is on control. I'm trying to figure out ways to increase my leverage. It's all about leverage. I'm going to figure out a way to increase my leverage over my team in order to control them and get what I want out of them. On the flip side, when you start moving towards the center in a healthy, what I call a mutualistic context, the leader is trying to gain or increase their influence with others. Okay. Instead of increasing their power over others, the leader is trying to in- gain or increase their influence with others, and their intent is to collaborate with them. I'm no longer trying to control my team. I'm trying to gain influence in order to collaborate with them in service of the mission, purpose, identity of the of the organization. So real quick, what are some things that leaders can do as a way to gain that influence instead of having to rely on the stick that power is sometimes? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, right? And there's a million answers to that. I've got actually a a list of really practical down to earth examples of contrasts, really. They're on my Instagram, um, which I believe is going to be in the show notes. I'll give you a kind of a sampling of some typical behaviors that you'll see when when a leader is trying to get control as opposed to the same situation, but the leader is, is trying to inspire collaboration. Uh, so here's here's a couple of examples. Leader A frequently reminds others of their own resume. They believe that their positional status is a result of greater worth, intelligence, talent, etc. Right? What they're trying to do in that situation, they're trying to maintain their superiority and justify being dismissive of those in lower positions. The result of that is they lose input from their team, they lose engagement from their team, and often from those that are the most connected to the daily ins and outs of the organization. On the flip side, leader B frequently appreciates the qualifications, the resume, the work ethic, et cetera, of their followers, right? They show regular appreciation to their followers for their qualifications, their resume. They recognize the value that their followers bring or their their direct reports bring. They recognize also the role of chance or external factors in their own success. And that is so key. It's really important. I like to tell people, listen, there are people who are smarter than you. They've worked harder than you. They're more talented than you. 
but because of timing or chance or by choice, they're lower in the workplace hierarchy than you. Hmm. Or maybe they haven't had as much career, quote unquote, success as you've had. And so when when a leader recognizes the value of the people who directly report to them, what they're doing is they're trying to maintain gratitude and they want to recognize the value of their followers. And when they do that, they gain mutual respect and collaboration. Right. That's just a really practical example of the ins and outs. If you've ever had a manager who was frequently talking about, you know, how qualified they were or tended to act in a way that they clearly believed that their status, their hierarchical status as a manager or the boss is because they, you know, they're smarter or they're more talented or whatever. You've experienced uh, someone who wasn't using power well. Let me go through one more real quick. Mm -hmm. Leader A demands transparency from followers. They're suspicious. They try to entrap them. And then they're angry when they're asked for transparency. What are they trying to do? They're trying to control behavior through fear and a kind of a one-way surveillance environment. And followers develop these covert behaviors to cope with surveillance. (laughs) Surveillance doesn't not help. And the culture becomes secretive and manipulative. That's on one side. On the flip side, you've got leader B who exemplifies transparency, who affirms things like separation of duties and dual control protocols, and who chooses to trust the intentions of their followers. Obviously, the trust but verify. And they're trying to protect everyone without impugning the integrity of anyone. And followers develop transparency mindset. The culture is open and collaborative. Everybody's protected. And so those are just a couple of examples um, where you see behaviors uh, either using power well or not using power well. Andy, thank you for sharing those. Now, before we finish up the interview for today, I'm wondering if there are any things that you think would be helpful to bring up that we haven't had a chance to discuss yet or something that you think is just so valuable you'd like to reiterate it. I think it's been really great. You've had some really great questions, and I appreciate the time. I will say that I think it's really important always, and especially now, when we talk about having trust with your team, honesty and clarity are so important. I was on a conference call some time ago on a Saturday morning. It was one of those. It wasn't in a particularly special call. It was one of those uh, kind of rah-rah calls that sales organizations typically have. And um, it was a Saturday morning. And, of course, everybody was excited to be on. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those calls, but if you have, you'll know that the word excited gets overused dramatically. (laughs) Everybody's excited all the time. We're so excited to be here, and I'm so excited you're here, and it's just an exciting, exciteful time to be excitedly here. And there was this middle manager that got introduced. Hey, I'm excited to introduce so-and-so. And And this guy gets on. He's a middle manager. And he says, hey, I'm super excited to be here. It is my extreme pleasure to be with you this morning. And I just sat there and thought to myself, there are only a couple of types of pleasure that one person can experience in their lives that could be considered extreme. Being on a conference call on a Saturday morning is definitely not one of them. (laughs) Like I, I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to get on board with that. But I think in corporate culture, we have almost a Stepford Wives kind of mentality that that we have to be something we're not, especially in a crisis. But all the time, it's important to be honest and clear with your team about the situation, about, you know, what's happening. Honesty and clarity is is a foundational building block of trust. Well, Andy, you actually have just started your own podcast called the Power and Leadership Podcast. I'd love for you to share about that just briefly and then let the listeners know where else they can learn more about you and the work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Power and Leadership Podcast is brand new. would love for folks to go check it out on iTunes or wherever, or on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast, it's available. We're going to talk about a lot of the things we've been talking about today on that podcast. It's 20 minutes or less, so it's a way to get an easy uh, snack 
uh, of leadership insight on your way to work, on your way home from work, on lunch or whatever, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Also, you can check out my website. It's andywallaceconsulting.com, and you can see a lot of what I do there, speaking, training, and other. Sounds good. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks, Josh. If you liked what you heard from Andy today, be sure to check out his new podcast, Power and Leadership, where you can hear more great insights like the ones he shared today. Speaking of which, let's go ahead and talk about today's three key takeaways. Each one builds on the other, and the first one is this. Culture, whether it's empowering or controlling, is made up of five key components. Physical and psychological safety, trust, accountability, agency, and incentive. Once again, that's physical and psychological safety, trust, accountability, agency, and incentive. The second key takeaway is this. These five components that we've just talked about all surround what should be central to the organization, which are its mission, its purpose, and its identity. And just as a quick recap, the mission is the what of the organization, the purpose is the why, and the identity is who we are in the process of fulfilling the mission and carrying out its purpose. And the final key takeaway is this. The further that any of these components gets away from the mission, the purpose, and the identity, the more poorly the culture will be expressed and the more dangerous it will become. So, for instance, as trust in an organization moves away from the mission and the purpose and the identity of the organization, the more it will erode and the more dangerous it will become. I think Andy shared a great model for how we can think about power and the importance of having a strong core in our organization and in our leadership, and I hope that you will take this to heart and check out more of the resources that he has to share with leaders. If you would like to see a version of his empowerment target that we talked about today, you can find a link to that by looking at the show notes in your podcast player or by going to lifeasleadership.com slash 078. Now, I hope you'll join us for Monday's interview because we're going to, with a different guest, continue some of this conversation around what it looks like to be a leader who creates a culture of engagement rather than one of compliance. I think it'll be a great addition to what we've talked about today, and I think that extra reinforcement would serve any leader well. So I hope you will come back then, and until then, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, 
It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, Business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If Business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading well.